Right, hello, welcome everybody to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Uh, we've got a bumper edition today, um, and I'm joined by Paul. Good evening. Calm. Hello. And we welcome the return of Stu Montague. Stu, how are you doing? Yeah, good, mate. Cheers for having me back on. Um, we've got a lot to talk about. I mean, football never fails to give us things to discuss, and even Burnley in the happy place at Turf Moor, uh, they're currently in Palace 1-0. Um, Stu, the last time we spoke to you, um, we had a chat with you about how COVID had affected football at your level. Um, just this afternoon, uh, this evening really, the government have announced that uh, outdoor sports can resume come the 2nd of of, of December. How, how are you feeling about that? Do you think that's going to be good to go or is it going to be a case of, well no one's going to be ready to play a game but we're going to have to it's going to be um, a tricky one at the grassroots level I think because we were presuming this was going to be the case and we were going to have to get right back into it um, you've you've got the issue where I think the tiers are still going to be in place so teams can't move in and out of tiers that's going to cause problems for um, for clubs that are sort of in one area but designated as another, say for instance in Manchester you've got teams that are designated as um, Derbyshire or uh, the Wirral and stuff like that, so that's going to be problemat- problematic for them I think. Um, I think the fact that it we come back out of it right before Saturday, so we're going to have to try and get a session in on a Thursday or a Friday for a bit of a, a bit of training or something, that'll be a problem. Um, yeah, as a coach it's, it's, not, a, it's not a massive problem, we, we can sort it out, I just... Uh, probably a little bit concerning that we're opening everything up again before Christmas, before everyone's about to uh, spread around the country. Um, but yeah, we'll just have to deal with it as it comes. Yeah, and of course, yeah. so we all know that um, COVID will be having five days off over Christmas. <laughs> or, or, or am I just being cynical? I don't know if COVID plays on Boxing Day, Dan. <laughs> I don't know, but it probably played the Wednesday before and it'll probably play the Monday after. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, the fixture congestion isn't actually on my list. It could easily get on it, but then again, it's been on it every week since. Um, yeah. If we, we go to the, the first um, thing on my agenda, um, and this is one of the, the big things I've got I've got Stu on for, um, and, and I know it's something that you're interested in as well, Paul, and seemingly you as well, Calm, there's only me who kind of overwhelmingly rejects the use of <laughs> stats in football. Um, Stu, this is something that we've in a completely friendly manner, clashed swords with uh, yeah. in the past. Um, so imagine me, you've seen the meme of someone who sat there with a cup of coffee and they have a sign on front of the table which says, such and such a thing changed my mind. So my argument is, the only stat that matters in football is the one in the top left-hand corner of the screen, or top right if you're watching BT. No, bottom left if you're watching BT, sorry. That's the score change my mind right okay well i mean that, that is definitely going to be a difficult proposition given our our chats, <laughs> our chats in the past so yeah the, the score is the only important uh number i get that but the idea is how how you get to the score so that that's what it's all about it's all about performance analysis for me and i, I find it i find it hugely interesting some of the stuff that they're doing it's it's um the basic stuff that we get to see like xg where i've spoken to you about it in the past that's the. It's a terrible name for it. I think people accept it's a terrible name for it. But it's basically just trying to give you a numerical value of uh, the quality of a chance. So that the idea being that you can see how often does that chance get scored usually, and then you can look across, you know, whatever your data set across the whole of Europe, across the last ten years, fifteen years, whatever, 
And it just gives you an idea of how likely you are to score from that position. So you can see how well people are doing, how poorly people are doing from that position, how how good a chance it is. That's like the really basic stuff that we get to see in the mainstream. Um, but that's not really, I mean, the, the more interesting stuff that's going on under the hub, like Liverpool have got guys from CERN working on spatial uh, models and things like that. And that's, it's, just, it's if you can measure it, you can you can get an advantage, in my opinion, from what from uh, the work that they're doing. If you can if you can imagine an aerial view where you've got all twenty two players in the ball, if you can track space, because that's all football. It, foot, essentially, in football, tactics is about creating space and moving the ball to create space. So once you can monitor that, you can see where people are making good choices, where people are making bad choices, where where dangerous areas are. There's loads of stuff that you can get out of it. And I understand a lot of people on uh, the, I'd say they're not, they're ignorant of it, you know, not deliberately. So it's just, it's not a mainstream thing, but I think there's, there's huge advantages going to be for the clubs who are investing heavily in this over the, uh, over the next few years. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I, I find this a really interesting area as well. I, I think, um, you know, one really interesting sort of uh, recollection I have from my time coaching non-league, and we touched on this previously when we spoke to Stu, but w- one really interesting thing was the last couple of years I was assistant manager at a club where, completely off his own back, um, uh, one of the fans, and we used to have about, I don't know, a hardcore of about 30, 40 that watched all our games. One of the fans came up to myself and the manager in the bar after the game and said, um, do you know that the opposition had, I think we won the game two or three nil. Do you know the opposition had more shots and more corners than us today? And and he'd, he'd just voluntarily off his own back, apparently been doing it for like two or three years before that, but no one had known. Um was compiling as you go in a game uh, information like corners and attacking free kicks and shots on target, shots off target, etc. Now that's the real base level of football stats, but actually it, it was quite interesting to to receive that at a, at a non-league level where you're not used to having anything because it does give you a, a different context in which to view the game and 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 that kind of then goes on at each of those levels from from that real base level which was quite useful information to us when otherwise we had nothing to a level where obviously that's information in in the mainstream on on your you know your sky sports sunday afternoon you've had for years and years and years to the next level beyond that which is the things like expected goals and the uh the graphics they show all the time now about average pitch position I, I think the the graphic of the average pitch position of Spurs in the first half on on Saturday got a lot of focus because they were all in their own half um uh, you know that that expected goals and, and that sort of um positional statistic analysis uh, as being the kind of next development on and and then as as Stu says there's there's the stuff that's still not in the mainstream at the moment that that takes it a little bit further I think where football hasn't quite got to yet in terms of nailing it in terms of really nailing the use of statistics is to to do what i term turn statistics into analytics and really identify what what are those those things that football teams do that correlate with winning and to really be able to to focus in on you know a, a, a smaller number of key indicators and i think a lot of that under the bonnet work is is the stuff that's trying to get statistical analysis within football 
to the level where you can say, okay, we can identify here that there are four or five key drivers about how you win games. Now, you know, there's lots of examples of sports where that's worked well. And I mean, the, the classic one is obviously baseball with uh, the story that the sort of Moneyball film is based on and Paul De Podesta and, and Billy Bean and the Oakland A's who, who basically said, actually, it's not about batters batting average. It's about how often they get on base. And that kind of undid a, a sort of automatic assumption that had held in uh, baseball for sort of 50 years that the way you you most directly correlated batting performance with winning was by batting average uh, and someone and it wasn't actually Paul De Podesta's theory in the first place he just sort of picked it up and refined it a little bit but the, the, the there was a way of looking at it that said the way we've always thought about it before is is wrong and this is a better way of thinking about it it correlates more directly with winning equally um Anyone who, who listens who is a, a fan of cricket will know that Peter Moores has tried twice as the England cricket head coach uh, to do a similar thing and to identify um, things that correlate with batting success in test matches uh, and, and with bowling success in test matches. And to try, you know, one of, the, one of his things was actually it isn't stump hitting percentage when you're bowling that, that really correlates with, with wickets. Um, and it's never really quite caught on at that sort of test cricket level, although he's had decent success as a coach in the county game with a, a very statistics and analytical driven approach. So I think that's kind of my overall view on it in sport. It's useful. The more information you've got, the better. I think generally it helps you make better um informed decisions, whether that's about in-match strategy, whether it's about transfer strategy in all these areas of your operations. But actually, the, the point at which it really breaks through is when it, it does what happened in baseball, which it goes beyond just a, statistic, a statistical analysis to a really analytical correlation between an activity and an outcome. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the closer we get to that in football, uh, I think football's a harder game to do it in because because tactically there's a, there's a lot more variation, but but there's you know that there there is a holy grail of being to real being able to really identify what are the key correlators that, that drive winning in football matches. I can give you a statistic for for cricket analysis certainly. Shane Watson, number of reviews for LBW four hundred and fifty three, number of successful reviews not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think Shane Watson could have done with some analytics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Certainly, every time I see people like squawking about VAR should be manager's discretion, all I can see is Shane Watson frantically reviewing something, like frantically reviewing a throw-in or something. Uh, well, first of all, I think very interesting points that Stu and Paul both make. I mean, I'm not I'm not a, a sort of a, a real you know stats nerd as such, but I do I do accept that I think they do have an important place in you know, a lot of modern sports and, uh, you know, as Paul said, football starting to replicate what some other sports, you know, some of the American sports have probably been doing for a bit longer now. Um, but I think, you know, it, it goes back to something we were talking about a few weeks ago on this podcast and, you know, what I think Paul called the strategy clubs, you know, when we we're talking about how, you know, some of the older traditional big clubs in Europe are struggling a bit in relative terms and, you know, other other clubs have kind of come out of nowhere a little bit and, and are doing well. Um, and I think it's partly to do with, you know, the reason that they're able to kind of find that that extra edge is, you you know, statistics is part of that. And I think a lot of clubs are using it to identify um, players and which is why, you know, players are, are sort of signing for clubs that perhaps they wouldn't do normally because they're able to identify them earlier um, and, and you know, sort of get them in, you know, at the Premier League 
um, at the sort of, you know, mid-table or, or, or sort of lower clubs. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have teams like Southampton doing really well. You know, Leicester have been really consistent the last few years. Um, you know, teams that perhaps traditionally wouldn't be normally. So I think it is, it is you know, it's not just statistics, of course, but I think it is starting to to help a lot more. And, you know, and of course, as you go up the chain, you know, the big clubs now, you know, started to use them. I'm sure, even though you're not a statistics fan, I'm pretty sure that part of the reason that, you know, you might have signed someone like Diego Jota is probably statistics will have played a part of that. I mean, I'm sure some of it is you could watch him play and say he's a very good player because he played very well for Wolves for a number of years and scored quite a few goals. But equally, I'm I'm sure there will have been um, some statistical analysis done into his performances there that informed Liverpool's decision to say, right, we're going to go and pay, you know, 30 million for him or whatever. Um, so I, I agree, you're right, you know, ultimately, the, the, you know, the results are what we all really care about. But, um, you know, I think as Stu said at the start, it's, it's, it's stats are being used to help you get the right players and play the right way to, to ultimately achieve that result. Very interesting, all, all three of you, thank you. Um, Are you well, persuaded, Dan? Have we solved well, it? Well, <laughs> Cam's kind of touched on something that I'll come back to later, which is regards to transfers and use of statistics. Because I do think there is a benefit to, to, to the certainly. Um, but one, one question I've got, and it, it's not a criticism of... I'm just going to use XG as an example. I'm going to make an example of XG because it's the most well-known, I would argue, apart from passes, shots, yada, yada. Um, and you've you've touched on this, Paul. I, I watched the, the, the Tottenham against Man City game um, at the weekend. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, I, I highlighted it to you, Stu, because you were getting pelters in, 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 in the, um, the, the chat that we have. You were called Trumpian for your disregard of XG. Um, but the eye test tells me that Tottenham created better chances than Manchester City. Simple as that. But they bombed uh, certainly one five on three where came ended up being offside. Uh, I think there was another one as well, if I remember rightly. Where they, they had they, they just made poor decisions. The final ball wasn't good enough, and it, it cost them the chance. And yet Manchester City had a higher XG at half time. So my, I, I've called it and been ridiculed for it in the past. The eye test, Tottenham looked a more dangerous proposition going forward in the first half anyway than Manchester City did. And yet at half time, Manchester City had a way higher XG. Can 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 any of you explain? The I'll tell you that because because that was a, that was a point I was putting across, wasn't it? So my. I <laughs> I was having XG thrown at me there because I was saying that Spurs were the more dangerous team and that Spurs were playing well and the City weren't playing well, despite the fact they had the ball. Um, and then it was, you know, the point was made they'd only had one shot on target. So I think this is this is this is an interesting one now. It's show, it does show one of the slight limitations of XG and that if you don't get a shot off, it doesn't register as a as a um a data point to record. But so in the deeper in the deeper analysis of it, when Spurs have got a four on two there or a four on three, with spatial analysis, which is what the the Liverpool guys do, so you would see if you almost almost imagine there's a heat map, you would see the danger on that heat map. You would see numerical values for where the possible passes were for the open players, and and that incident would have you would be able to to record that as danger. It would flash up. Now, obviously, I don't know exactly how they do that, but they track speed of players, speed of ball, position of defenders. So they know in that situation that even when a shot hasn't, uh, you haven't got a shot off, 
there's you know there was still danger there and the, the one thing i'd say to you dan if you if you look at how it is how it is definitely changing the game is similarly to the way basketball if you look at where shot locations are taken in basketball down the years after they started applying something called expected possession value the shots all start to correlate in the high value areas they stop taking shots from poor areas and I think you'll see that now more and more and more with football, where the Andros Townsend shot, where he has 50 of them for a goal, the Neves shot, where he has 50 of them for a goal, like you will start to see the shot maps in the, in the top leagues will start to correlate around where high-value areas are because you shouldn't be taking a shot from this area. That's what a coach will be telling you. Why are you taking such a low-value shot? Um, so that's one thing I think that's already affecting the top game uh and i find it interesting as a lower as a lower level coach as well because i think it makes you think about things like that when you're talking to lads it's like do you really need to shoot from there could you not create a much higher value chance um but yeah that that was my point i was making uh, in the week down as well actually does have its limitations and you can you can feel danger and see danger without a shot but what i'm saying is under the hood the top teams know that you know they are monitoring that i think and there's no um, it's not a surprise to me that the teams that are absolutely investing heavily in this, like Liverpool, are flying performance-wise. It's, it's a really interesting point on the on the shot value. It's It was an Arsene Wenger philosophy from pretty much the moment he arrived at Arsenal that he did not like Arsenal shooting from, from outside the penalty area. It was not his philosophy. He felt that for, you know, for, for all the times you were successful with it, there'd be, you know, a dozen times when actually there was an opportunity to create a better, a better opening, a better opportunity. Um, and it just wasn't a philosophy believed in. And I think, I think there is, as, as Stu says, there's, there's likely to be a move as, as the data kind of supports that. I think it was more of a gut instinct thing from Arsene Wenger back in the mid nineties. I didn't, suggest that he was that ahead of the curve that he was already doing the sort of statistical analysis that, that, that kind of comes 25 years later but but the, I think the evidence will support his theory ultimately that um, more often than not all you've done is conceded possession by by giving it back to the opposition goalkeeper or or, or even for a goal kick so um, I think there's you know there's there's a lot of interesting work to be to be done there and and it will affect the game I think the other thing you'd say on the Man City Tottenham game the, and again, I'm no expert on the way XG is correlated, but Man City did spend, you know, the whole of the first half, basically, except for three counterattacks, camped on the edge of the Tottenham uh, box. I mean, in the in the in the five minutes before half time, Tottenham were defending the six yard line. Now, Man City never never recovered that kind of head of steam at any point in the second half. I think they they sort of collapsed mentally. Frankly, is is what I think happened. Again. But, but again, but in the in the certainly in the last ten minutes of that first half, Tottenham were getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And again, I, I don't know the extent to which uh, the the expected goals um, sort of factors in territory and possession and 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 use of the ball in the in the in and around the penalty area. But but it was a bit like a, a sort of without Man City creating loads and loads of clear openings, it was a bit of a siege in the last ten minutes of the first half. Um, and Spurs couldn't really get out. And I, I was saying at halftime, if, if Spurs play like those last 10 minutes, they've got no chance of holding on here. Um, ultimately, they didn't. They, they came out second half, and from pretty much the first passage of play in the second half, they were holding their line 10 yards higher up the field. 
Uh, and Man City just ran out of ideas and ran out of um, ran out of mental toughness. I think in the end. Again. Hmm. Um, Only word of caution against stats is uh, big big Sam or visionary mercurial manager Sam Allardyce, as he maybe should be called, was a big was it was a. <laughs> Was a big ad- early advocate of of, of statistics, you know, up to stats as, as as what was available back back then. Um, so maybe a maybe a word of, of caution that it's not it's not depending on your view of Sam Allardyce and his managerial style and his playing style. You know, maybe maybe a word of caution there. It's, it's, it's interesting, Colm, but that but that's again a development of of the the level of statistics we've got because Graham Taylor mm. back in his days at Lincoln and Watford in the in the late seventies and early eighties, Graham Taylor was driven by uh, i can't remember who who published the book now but there was there was essentially a book around at that time that that said goals are scored from inside the penalty area by an overwhelming majority so what you need to do is maximize the amount of time the ball is in the opposition penalty area and that was really the driving philosophy between graham taylor and the pretty direct let's say uh, style mm. of football that his team's generally employed so i think again you know the Stats have always been there in football. Uh, it's it's a level of our understanding and the the ability that we have now to do that more analytical piece. I would argue that um, the way the game is now, actually, it isn't just about having the ball in the other box. If if it's in the other box, but but you've only got one player in there, it's it's frankly pretty useless to you. I've got a funny. Uh, can, can I just come in with a funny funny uh, story about Sam Allardyce's um, analytics? Um, he was obsessed, particularly with physical you know like i think he used to find players if they come down with cramp and john was telling me a funny story about when um he, he got his players to work kind of like a heart monitor for the, the weekend you know when they were going on the the runs and uh he, he gave ian marshall one and ian marshall couldn't be bothered with all this this hoo-ha you know he was on the edge of retirement so when he went for a, a walk with his dog he put the uh the heart rate monitor on his dog I think he was summoned um, to the the training complex on the I think the Tuesday. Says you know, you've got a problem with your heart, and he was like, "Oh no, it's not. It's just a I put it on the dog because I couldn't be bothered." Um, <laughs> I just I remember that that was a particular. You, you say Ian story. Marshall was close to retirement, Dan, but he played like he was close to retirement his whole career. I think. Yeah, well, I'm not trifling with someone who scored a last minute winner in front of the cop when I was there one night. For, in his time at Leicester, that was the same night United come from two 0 down in Turin. Um, so it was a particularly miserable time to to walk out of the stadium having lost one 0 to a Leicester counter attack, and then to find out that United have have got to the uh, the Champions League final. I was just jump. I was just going to jump in there. I think the book that you're talking about is Wing Commander Charles Reap from back in the day. I think that might that, be that's the... that's right. Yeah, that rings about. Yeah. I was just going to say there because I actually, when I did one of my coaching courses, it was with the guy who ran um, Allardyce's academy for him for a couple of years. And it was actually quite, I don't particularly like Sam Allardyce, but I've got quite a bit of respect for what he did with a small club. And he was constantly trying to do sort of um, different things with his academy. He was looking for, I think he was looking for lads and had growth spurts yet. He was looking for late birthdays in his academy. And there was just all sorts of like interesting, you know. Uh, position of maximum opportunity was the stuff we heard about, but he was genuinely quite innovative, I think, early doors, Allardyce. Well, he was the first one to have the headset on, wasn't he? (laughs) And they must have done some routing to find a headset that size. Um, And and then had a translator to translate whatever the hell Sammy Lee was saying through the other end of it. 
Well, <laughs> Mourinho was never busy if you need a translator. Uh, oh, that's that's a bit close to the bone. Um, Mourinho's doing very well at Spurs at the moment. Um, if we can just kind of like begin to wrap up on stats, and this has been genuinely fascinating stuff. You, you've touched on this, all three of you. I, I would agree that Yotta going to Liverpool is probably quite heavily stats-driven, although, again, passes the eye test. He always looked dangerous for Wolves. But his stats were one in three. That's not bad at this level. Um, do you think that stats in football play a massive part for transfers now, or is it only, as as Paul coined a few weeks ago, the strategy clubs that are kind of in on this? No, I think it's I think it's huge. I think it, there's some of the things that you can... Uh, you've got to remember as well when you talk about the eye test is the whole point is that you don't have to go and see every player in the world to, to be able to pick out someone who's got um, quality. You know, it might even be, even back in the day, you know, the idea that uh, Arsene Wenger just... Um, Flamini stuck stuck out to him because of the amount of yardage he was getting through. So then you can go and have a, you've already filtered it down so that you can go and have a quick look at him because you think, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, um, it's the the things. It's almost like I was saying before. Anything you can think of on a football field, once you've got that spatial map, is you can measure it. So you can measure if someone is in a pocket of space and doesn't get the ball. You can measure um, the angle of a pass to split two people. You can measure whether that was on and it didn't get played, or whether it wasn't on and you tried to force it. There's just there's a million and one different ways you can use that data that can um, inform you on what a player's doing. Uh, even things uh, further back from moves, like uh, there's something called XG chain. So that's the idea of how much value you're adding to move the ball into a dangerous position. So uh, if we take, say, Xabi uh, Alonso, when Liverpool were good, uh, under Benitez, when he would get the ball, he would fire it 50 yards up the pitch to Steven Gerrard's feet. There was a numerical value of how dangerous the ball was when he had it, and then when he gave it, up, and when he put it up the pitch. So these are the things that you're looking for. If, if you're if you're looking for a player, and I think it's the idea that there's someone in the Austrian first division who's absolutely smashing some of the numbers you're looking for. It makes life easier. You can just you can pick him out and go right. Let's have a look at that lad because he looks like he's doing something which is in the you know the top percentile. I think the I think the XG chain was a, was a big factor in in Real Madrid taking Modric from Spurs as well. If you remember at the time, there was a huge amount of um, sort of noise created about how little in terms of goals and assists Modric's numbers were making a difference to Spurs. And, and and he almost coined a complete new conversation in in English football about the past before the assist, um, and it and it was it was the critical thing that Real Madrid were looking for was was not necessarily the player to play the final pass, but the player who could actually move the ball from a non-dangerous position on the field of play into a dangerous position on the field of play. And that was that was one of the reasons that they were so keen to take Modric. Yeah, Again, now, we can all sit here and we've all seen Luka Modric play and, and knew he was a brilliant player, but it's about, it's about, as Stu says, being able to identify the real specifics. It goes back to what I said at the start. What are those numbers that you can look at and say, this correlates to winning? And if you've got a player who's consistently been able to move the ball from a, a non-dangerous area... To, to one of your players in a dangerous area, then that's going to correlate pretty well with your chances of scoring goals and, and, and winning games. Have we persuaded you now, Dan? Well, what, what I was going to say <laughs> was that um, the reason that I don't like statistics is because I am 
to maths what David Coote is to refereeing. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> so it's difficult for me to... It's, like, honestly, put numbers in front of me. I'm, I'm a words man or a speaking man, and I'm not too brilliant at that either. I, 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 you put numbers in front of me, and it intimidates me. But it, it's interesting, particularly... If, we all know that I love a good transfer. So, yeah, looking at, at the numbers is is interesting, but... Um, uh, do you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go away and read a little bit about about some of the, the things you've mentioned. I, I, XG I know and is is something that I, I constantly kind of occasionally mildly baits you with, but it's not. Something, <laughs> I, I'm not hostile to it. It's just that I don't get it. If you get what I mean. the 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 other thing I think to bear in mind, Dan, and to keep in mind with numbers is is no numerical system is ever infallible. So so there will always be. Um, there will always be occasions and uh, uh, situations that match players that, that are anomalies, but it doesn't make the it doesn't make the pursuit of trying to identify those analytical drivers any less worthwhile. Just because every now and again you'll get a game where you know nothing makes sense, and yet the other team win one 0 Yeah, a football manager game, as people call it. <laughs> The same game, you get eight injuries as well, but that's just real life at the moment, to be honest. Um, so thank you very much, the, the three of you. Very interesting. Um, I'm gonna. What I'll take from it is I'll go away and have a read about some some of these things that are being developed and and and, and see and see if I can identify. Oh yeah, well Liverpool are clearly doing this, or um, such and such. Well, he's not doing anything about that. Be be interesting to do. If we kind of like switch uh, our focus, um, this wasn't on the agenda I sent out to you, Stu, because it's something that's only really come up over the weekend. But there's been a lot of talk of of reduced heading in the game due to the um, obviously Nobby Styles' family have have kind of begun yeah. to campaign for an investigation into the effects of heading. Um, particularly interesting question for you, Stu, because you're um, obviously you're in in the coaching game at the moment and. Yeah. What, what do you think about this? I mean, Slavin Bielic you know, said you, know, you, you could reduce heading in, in, in training, but on a match day, it's not football if you don't head. Um, what, what are your thoughts on it, and, and how do you think that reduced heading could fit? Could it fit? It's difficult, I think, because obviously without, without having full awareness of all the data myself, but it does seem pretty convincing that there's, you know, there's some pretty dangerous links. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense to uh, to not have kids at young levels heading the ball a lot. Um, that feels like it's a really easy win because you know they're still young, the brains are still developing, and the, the data seems to point towards that being not a great idea. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think it's difficult because if you if heading is in the game, if we decided that we're still going to head footballs, then as a coach, you want repetition and you want you want to be perfecting that technique. So it's difficult. I mean, you, you hear the argument, seen the argument a few times about the old balls, but I don't think the weight and the velocity of the the modern balls is is that different, really. I think it was different. Apparently, that it was different when the old balls were wet, but they went slower as well. So um, I don't think there's a great difference. So I think the modern players are also, you know, they'll be concerned about what the effects are going to be for them. But it might end up being a situation a bit like boxing where you accept that risk when you enter the sport. So for professionals, that seems like an, a decent trade-off at amateur level. I don't know. I don't, you know, it, is it something that you accept when you decide you're going to play football? 
because they're just or, or do we move I mean essentially you're gonna you move to a game where you can't head the ball I mean it, that's it feels strange to us now to think that but that might be the situation we get to I mean we, we change and we get over it but um I don't know I mean I think it's very much up up for debate yeah, I, I think it's interesting, Dan. I know my so, so my dad's in his early sixties, played a little bit of pro, and then was a, as a top level semi pro. And I know he's, you know, he's said to his doctor he already feels as though like he isn't completely as as mentally, um, you know, capable as maybe he was ten years ago. And and as as said that you know he wonders if I, I think he's a bit sort of paranoid about it because of the the stuff that's in the news. But but. But he's worried that, you know, is there an impact from, he was a centre-half, he headed a lot of footballs from probably the age of, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, played for England schoolboys, you know, he, he he was playing a good level of football all the way through his life till his late 30s, um, you know, headed a lot of footballs, both in training and in matches. Um I mean the the evidence so far, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with the with the Nobby Styles death that um Jeff Astle's daughter was on the radio and and you know, you are three times more likely than other men in your age group if you've played football at a good level, um, to suffer with uh sort of issues relating to um to brain injury and to brain function later in life. Uh now they haven't yet proved correlation. Um is uh, prove that the correlation is causation, but um, but equally that that that's a pretty glaring statistic. Uh, I think we should be thinking now about what the situation um, requires us to do. I think there is a question about whether heading in training is something we need to look at. Um, I know that you know, again I talk a lot about the NFL, but when the NFL first realized it had a, well, probably not when it first realized, when it first owned up to the fact it had a concussion problem, um, it introduced very strict guidelines about the way in which players can practice. There are, you know, in the old days, you could practice as many hours as you wanted as an NFL team. Coaches used to have them out for two a days in the summer where they, you know, they practice just running into one another basically for, for eight hours on a, on a hot summer's day um, to prepare for the season. Uh, that's not allowed anymore. There are restrictions about how long you're, supposed, you're allowed to practice. There are restric- uh, restrictions about how many practices are deemed full contact uh, and the teams are checked up on and made sure that they're adhering to those, those regulations. So that there are questions about whether football needs to think about something in that space. Um, I think at the moment, it, it, I think, Taking heading out of the game itself should be kind of the last resort, but we should be starting to think about what are the things that we can try before we get to that point to see if it can have a beneficial impact. Um, And I think the only other thing I'd say is a lot of it's focused on heading the ball, and that's definitely right. The other thing that I think we shouldn't lose sight of with heading is the number of times that players will have headed other players. Um, and those big, you see them in the Premier League even now. I mean, not probably as much as we did 15 years ago, but those big two players go for the ball in the air. It's full blooded and they both end up, you know, going off and needing stitches. Uh, those big collisions um, are the sort of things that cause concussions that can have long term impacts. So uh, definitely, I think it's something that football needs to move on. I think the sooner it starts, down the road of trying to improve the situation, hopefully the more chance there is of being able to protect uh, an element of the game that I think a lot of people would see as as part of its kind of charm. Um, 
that there's that mix between you know the teams who want to pass it on the floor and the teams who want to put it in the air. It's it's part of part of what makes football what it is. I don't think there's much I can add. I think you know the the guys have covered it you know really well. I think yeah, certainly not having heading in football would seem <laughs> would seem very strange. Um, you know may, maybe it will encourage more teams to uh, to play it play it on grass. So you know Brian Clough will be happy. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, equally you know I know it hasn't been sort of fully proven. I think it's it's clear that there are you know links there to, to sort of longer term effects, or it's very likely that there will be so should think about, you know, innovative methods, whether it is starting with training and things like that or putting limitations on, um, you know, when when players sort of had the ball in training. I guess one argument back from some players, you know, particularly maybe, well, probably strikers and defenders, I suppose, might be, well, if I can't practice, how am I supposed to try and score with a header if I don't have a chance, you know, in training? So I suppose there's, there's that angle as well to consider. Um, but I'm sure they can find, like I say, whether it is a, you know, you get an hour a week or something, um, you know, to, to to sort of practice heading or whatever. I, I don't know, but that you know, you think there must be some options they could at least trial. Um, I think that the, maybe the difficulty is if if you don't know if it's causing an impact on later life, how quickly will you get going back to stats? But how quickly would you get any data to prove it's made a difference? Because you have to wait for those players to turn sixty in forty years time to find out. So I think there's perhaps a bit of a trade off there as well to understand how how effective would would the changes be and when would we know. Um, is maybe the awkward part of it. Yeah, very interesting points, gents. Thank you very much. Um, I, I should really have mentioned that one after um, after we were talking about football restarting, to be honest. But I wanted to start with um, start with the stats because I know it's a subject closer to your hearts than it is mine. We've already mentioned the game at the weekend. Two of the talking points, we can kind of roll them into one. Um, Tottenham against Manchester City. Um, Guardiola signed a new contract. Um, last week, which I didn't expect. I thought he was going to Juventus for certain. Uh, I'm really surprised that he's staying, to be honest. It's good for the league. Um, you know, Obviously, Guardiola attracts a lot of attention, um, but I, I am surprised that he signed that deal. What do you, what do you gents think? I, I'm, I'm glad you've you've said that, actually, Dan, that you were surprised, because I, I thought it was a bit out of the blue myself, to be honest with you, so I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one. And um, I, To be honest, I... I hadn't heard that he was linked with Juventus either, actually. Um, so that's that's interesting. That's I didn't, just I didn't my know. Speculation, that. Oh, I see. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I, what I was thinking, I wasn't really sure, sort of who it benefited, if that makes any kind of sense. Like, because what is it? It's a two-year, two-year extension. It is. Um, and I've, was it was it up in the summer? Then was that is that why he's signed it now? Was he yes, was he totally till the end of this year? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I, I suppose it suggests that he is going to stick around for, for a bit longer, you, you would assume, um, and that he's not quite, maybe he wants to have a crack at, you know, re, fit, you know, doing this sort of rebuild. You know, they are a bit in transition at the moment. You know, Liverpool, you know, are clearly the better team at the moment. Quite a few teams look a better team than them, given their league position. So maybe it's it's him sort of showing he's actually got, and I think it's been a bit of a criticism levelled against him. You know, has he got the stomach for the fight? You know, when the going gets tough, he gets going. So is this him sort of saying, no, I'm going to stick around and try and, you know, rebuild, you know, another another team and, and try and win another league before I go? You know, maybe it's a statement of ambition. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I was also, yeah, it did seem a little bit out of the blue. Um, but yeah, I don't, know what, I don't know what the other lads think. I, I think 
two years is is hardly sort of huge long term um, commitment. And I, I know it, it, you know there was a theory that maybe he'd go at the end of the season. Um, I don't think he necessarily sees those two years out as well. I think it probably means he'll be the Manchester City manager next year. Uh, but I don't think it absolutely guarantees he's the manager after that. Um, I thought there was an interesting uh, comment on Twitter that I saw on on Saturday evening after the game, which is that Man City's three wins this season in the league have all come against teams who've got a certain similarity in in Arsenal, Wolves and and Sheffield United. And they, they all play with a relatively rigid structure to the team. Um, and that actually teams who play with a bit less of that rigid structure and are a bit more creative when they sort of break out of their defensive shape. And Spurs certainly are. They, they're, they're very well structured defensively, but the front three, when they break out, are, are, are pretty creative players and they and they can you know do things a little bit out of the ordinary. That, that They get through Manchester City's midfield, which is a bit passive. That's certainly my observation. I've been saying basically since he signed him last year that I think Rodri is a little bit passive for this league. I don't think he is a protagonist in the centre midfield. I think he he's a decent positional player. He's a tidy passer, but I don't think he goes and makes the game happen enough. I think he sort of lets the game happen. Um, and I think they're missing a bit of the the sort of dog mentality that Fernandinho brought to them um, when Pep first came to the league. They're definitely missing Fernandinho's fantastic sort of perception of when a good tactical foul is required. Um, but then, it, but then again, it, you know, it, it's easy to look and say, oh, it's all the defence and it's all the way they've been counterattacked on, etc. They're not scoring any goals at the moment, Man City. I mean, that will be the most concerning thing for Pep uh, that. It's a while since they scored more than one in a game. Uh, and that that really will be worrying them. I think it's interesting with regards to um, the stories that you hear of Pep Guardiola basically frying people's brains over like three years and that the players, the players, the intensity that he has, it wears the players down and they end up hitting a wall. So I think given where they're at at the moment, uh, it's as a, a fan of an opposition team, do I see Pep Guardiola sorting that situation out anytime soon? I'm not sure I do. I think the combination of players getting worn down by the sort of intensity he has, and also I, I don't think it's ever been his speciality to instill a sort of uh, a resilience into players. He's, he's used to... He's a genius. He's a coaching genius, um, but he, he uses the best players at, at his disposal to, you know, mutilate the opposition and just, you know, destroy them. I think you can look at City last year. The amount of times they come from behind are they just don't. If you score the first goal against them, that's the, they're done. Um, yeah, and I just think the mindset's very sort of woe is me, and things are going against okay. us sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I'm not so, as an opposition supporter, do I think someone like Pochettino or whoever then, you know, or Nagelsmann could come in and I'd be a little bit more worried that they might reinvigorate that squad? Maybe, yeah, maybe. And that's from someone who I've got a huge amount of respect for Guardiola. I think he's an, a, an exceptional coach, a generational uh, thinker. But I don't know if he's if he's the man to rest that because they, they seem to be... Drift, they almost seem to be drifting a bit, almost like. And as I say, maybe that is because the players are a bit frazzled, as as you know, Bayern Munich players said the same thing. 
but they they were frazzled and they were just you know they're sick of the intensity that you've got in training and stuff like that I don't know I'm, it's interesting it's interesting to see whether that extra year or that extra two years will be will be good for City I think Guardiola probably wants them because he wants to win the Champions League because he's you know his performance in the Champions League over the last few years hasn't been good um yeah, it's an interesting one. As Paul says, maybe he doesn't see that out. Maybe it is just a you know a one plus one sort of situation um, where maybe the club are giving him that. Maybe there's a look at Messi when Messi's contract runs down. Do they think they've got more chance of getting Messi if Guardiola's there? Um, yeah, don't know. It's an interesting one, but I think there's there's problems there at City. I thought that I think the where with me thing is something that's really interesting to you because I thought when they were coming off at half time on Saturday, having dominated the first half except for Spurs took a chance when they broke away and Man City didn't blow the house down despite lots of possession in and around the box. When they come off at half-time ranting, I mean, Kevin De Bruyne was in the referee's face. I thought it was Roy Keane for a second <laughs> about the disallowed goal. I thought to myself, that's not a great message. You're 1-0 down. Okay, it's a big game and okay, you're frustrated. The goal's been disallowed, but it's half-time and you're 1-0 down at Tottenham. I don't think that's the time to be in the referee's face angry about a goal that's not been given because I think two years ago Manchester City would have walked off the pitch into the dressing room thinking we're only 1-0 down we'll score twice in the second half it won't be a problem and it, it did it did give me a little bit of that where with me was the exact sort of phrase I thought when I saw it happen um, the players look as though every time a little thing goes against them oh god here we go again oh, oh VAR oh, it's awful rather than actually kind of having that resilience and that belief in what they're doing to just go back in and come out second half and turn it round. And and I, I think that's a really interesting observation. There's definitely a thing about Guardiola wearing people out because he's so intense. Um, Mourinho has some of that as well. Uh, you know, they, they tend to stay short periods at clubs for a good reason. Um, I, I think the other thing, though, when I when I look at after his first summer, Guardiola's first sort of summer after the first season. So he had his first season, didn't go as well as expected. He had a good summer. He brought in the goalkeeper. He brought in Kyle Walker. He brought in two or three others who, who made a difference for them. Um, but then after that, from that point onwards, when you look at the players that have come into the squad and say, are any of these better than the ones they had before? I think with the exception of Laporte, who definitely is, there's no one else about whom you can say, yeah, definitely an upgrade. Um, and they've lost some big players in that time, the likes of, of Company and, and David Silva, who, you know, two absolute legends at Manchester City. Sergio Aguero's, you know, two years older. And I, I just wonder whether the people they've replenished with are of the right quality. Um, and, and that's not all on Pep. That's, that's some on the people um, he's got working with him as well. Yeah, I'm glad you've mentioned the personnel side, and we we did speak about this a few weeks ago, I think, as well, didn't we? Around the yeah, the you know who they've they've brought in as replacements, and I think it is a it is a valid point, and maybe that's why. I mean, you know, De Bruyne is clearly one of their best players, but maybe that's where some of that confidence comes in because maybe when he looks around, he's like, oh, where's David Silva? Where's oh, and I know Guerrero's still there, but injured, but maybe he's looking around that team and thinking, actually, who are the players that are going to get us out of this? Because um, maybe some of the ones around him aren't as good as the ones two years ago, um, and that might be where some of that that woe is me comes from. I think Kevin De Bruyne is reminding me a little bit when I'm watching now Steven Gerrard, in that I look at him uh, when Pep keeps tinkering around with the side when they're in the last 
last eight, last four of the Champions League, and instead of just sending them out to do what they're good at, he's fiddling about with things, and then they go out. And I think I watched De Bruyne now, and I think that it'd be interesting to find out what their relationship's like, because he, especially against Spurs, and a few games I've seen recently, he looks like he's looking around the team, and his body language is poor, because he's, I think he's frustrated. I think he's frustrated with what's around him. He's frustrated with the standards that people have got around him. And it did remind me a little bit of Gerard when he was looking around going, am I going to have to do everything here again, boys? Yeah. And, the, and there's definitely the point that they keep, you know, some of this fiddling around that Pep's done has taken De Bruyne out of what his best position is at times, um, you know, and played him in these sort of strange inside left positions and, you know, played him as a false nine one game. And I, and I think there might be a bit of frustration there that A, there isn't the quality around him that maybe there was a couple of years ago or, or quality that he is proven and that he knows he can rely on. Um, but equally, yeah, there's, there's, there's probably a little bit of frustration that... Um, that the team isn't playing as well as it can. And and, and that sort of seeps its way through. They're, they're definitely low on confidence. You can see it when you watch them play. The ball isn't moving as quickly as uh, as it was a couple of seasons back. You used to say it about the Wenger Arsenal teams as well. You, you can tell whether they're confident or not by the pace they're passing the ball. And there's a little bit of that in Man City at the moment. You can see that the, the tempo of the passing is slower than it was when they were at the peak a couple of years ago when we had that fantastic title race that, that, that went right to the wire. If we then pivot to a title race um, and another team in it from the same match, um, Paul, I know your answer is going to be no, not at all, not on your Nelly, but um, Aspers in the title race. So I think I've changed my mind, Dan. I think they are. Um, I, I didn't think so a few weeks ago when we talked about this. And the reason I didn't think so at the time was I was still sceptical of their defending. But I think, and this applies to Chelsea as well, actually. I think if Spurs and Chelsea continue to defend as they have the last three or four weeks, now I know Chelsea maybe haven't been playing anyone and, and they've got some tougher tests to come. But if Spurs and Chelsea can defend, they're in the title race because they both have players, and a number of players at the upper end of the pitch. You look at Spurs with Bale and Kane and Son and Mora, um, who can make a difference at that end of the pitch. And, and the same with the you know the 100 players that Chelsea signed in the summer. Uh, if those two can defend better than they did in the first three or four weeks of the season, I think they are title threats. And I think they may be the only two title threats because at the moment Manchester City don't look like they've got a run of 15 wins in them, which they might need to, you know, or 12 wins out of 15 or something, which they might need to kind of put themselves in the in it. Um, but yeah, I think I think alongside Liverpool at the moment, I'd look at Chelsea and Tottenham as the two that have got a chance. Uh, and part of that is is their improved defending. Yeah, I think they're they're in. They're in a title race. I, I do still, much as it pains me to say it, I think Liverpool are obviously still still the team to beat um, in terms of, you know, best best team, best squad. You know, even with, uh, you know, even with the injuries you've got at the moment, you made pretty light work of a, of a good Leicester team um, at the weekend. So I think, yeah, and, and, you know, obviously now you've got that experience of obviously winning it last year and going close to the year before and so on. This is a, a really experienced squad that you've got. That said, of course, you know, Mourinho knows his way around winning the Premier League as well at Spurs. So they do have that edge. Um, obviously, I'm delighted for him with how well they're doing. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, that they are playing, you know, they're playing really well. Like I say, you know, Chelsea had a slightly wobbly start as they were kind of bedding in the new players. And, you know, as Paul said, bit bit dodgy at the back. But all of a sudden, you know, since sort of October, they seem to have 
you know, mid-October seem to have really sorted that out. Um, so we'll have to wait and see how it goes. There's still a lot, lot of football to be played, but yeah, that they're up there and, and rightly so. Um, and I think as well with, with, with Spurs, obviously, definitely there's that Son and Kane staying fit factor as well that I think we've mentioned before is really important because that's those two playing together is really what makes them tick uh, in a, and certainly, you know, in attack. Um, and I think that, you know, probably the two, I'd argue maybe the two sort of outstanding players of this season as well um, in the way that they, they play together and the amount of goals and assists that they've got. Um, you know, they're absolutely critical if, if Spurs are going to sort of stay in the hunt. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to see how it, uh, see how it plays out and be good to have a bit of a mixture than the last two years of it being sort of all about Liverpool and City, um, seeing some other teams have a, have a crack at it. And, you know, it's been such a bizarre season already. Um, yeah, be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, I think as Carl says there, it's such a, it's such a bizarre season that it, it, it's so hard to tell just like eight, nine games into it where, where it's going to end up. I think, with the amount of injuries that teams are getting, with with there being no preseason, that probably does bring into play a little bit uh, the likes of Spurs, the likes of Chelsea, um, because you you're probably not going to get you know a Liverpool team that have been going at what ninety five points a season for about three years, like that level of performance just is it's just impossible to carry that on this year. I just I just don't see that happening. So I see you know a title win this year with you know maybe low 80s you know maybe even as down in the, the high 70s like the United treble team or something you know something like that it, it might end up not being an amazingly high performance level that you need to win the league this year so that would bring in your Leicesters it would bring in your Tottenham's um, yeah I think Kane staying fit would be a huge one I think he's physically on the wane a little bit now um, I think he's had quite a few injuries, so whether playing in that playing in that number ten role might be less physically demanding for him, with Son doing all of his running and Mora doing running for him, maybe it's less demanding. Maybe it places less emphasis on uh, on him. Maybe he's more likely to stay fit all season. But I think it's really difficult to um, to make a, a judgment nine games in. Uh, but currently they are, I'd say, yeah, currently they're, they're in the chase. I think 18 games in, halfway through the year, maybe we'll have a better idea. I think I don't think anyone's won the league with fewer than 80 since the Man United treble team, have they? So I think that would be a really low total for someone to end up winning it with. Yeah, I think it might be that this year, though. I think you're going to have a lot of teams with a lot of injuries. There's going to be quite a lot of inconsistency. Um, I think if it isn't a low points total, it will be that Liverpool have carried on They've managed to somehow keep that up. Because um, I, I think I think Leicester was, was Leicester eighty one, and that's that's a pretty low. Uh, and, and Leicester won it with eighty one, and we're about nine points clear, which is you know crazy. I think Arsenal finished second with with seventy two, which is probably the lowest second place we've had in a long, long time as well. I, I, I'd be surprised if it goes as low as high seventies, but I I certainly can see a team somewhere between the the, the mid to low eighties um, ending up as champions. I agree. I think someone getting ninety five plus points again, uh, which has happened, you know, with Liverpool and Man City combined. I think the champions have got. Uh, 90 plus 95 plus points three years in a row i mean that's staggering uh it's sort of set all sorts of new benchmarks and i think it will be hard the season we've got to to see somebody repeat that well i think at the moment spurs and liverpool are on 20 points aren't they and i think they've played nine 
So that sort of puts it at low 80s, doesn't it, roughly? My, my yeah. maths isn't my strong point, but it sort of puts it 80, 85, doesn't it? It must, must work out. Dan, you, like that. you've talked about liking maths, Dan. What does that average over <laughs> <compare with> 38? <laughs> it, it, it says to me that if um, Tottenham uh, get through the run, of the, the run of the next six games or so, that they have up till Boxing Day when they're at Molyneux, they, they play pretty much everyone in and around the top of the table now. So we'll, we'll soon see... What what they're made of? They're, they're clearly a good team. It's obvious that they're a good team. Will they sustain it? I'm not so sure. They've got a, a tough run of games coming up. Yeah, but one of them is us, and we'll play well and fail to win because that's what we do at Tottenham <laughs> in recent years. <laughs> Those games might suit them a bit more, you know, because Mourinho can just sit in. So it might actually be that they end up dropping points that they should do against teams where they've got to go out and beat them a bit more. Mm. It might be the tight games that they're okay. They might get to halfway, get through these next seven or eight games in good shape. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that suits them, the tough games. I agree, actually. Sorry. I, I, think the, I think the test for Spurs is, is the lesser teams at home that are really going to sit in and make Spurs sort of take the game to them. I think that that, that is where I think I see the, t- the test for Tottenham. They almost do what Tottenham did to Manchester City on on Saturday. Back to them, I think that they are the they are the games that will be interesting. Maybe not against the real bottom end of the table sides, but those, you know, Newcastle have got a really good record at Spurs in recent years. I know they've already played them there this year, but it's it's teams who can do that, who can go there and sit in and then break on Spurs the way Spurs like to break on the on the on the top sides. Yeah, the asterisk if Spurs do well this year is that Mourinho could never have got away with this if there were Spurs fans in the stadium. So he's absolutely <laughs> loving. He's absolutely loving the fact that he doesn't need to come out of a, come out of his own half because there's no Spurs fans encouraging him. <laughs> it's very true. Arsenal aren't exactly ripping up trees, attacking wise at the moment. You know, like maybe that would make might be a defensive masterclass nil nil. Yeah, we haven't scored from open play in eight hours, Dan. So, um, <laughs> so it's going well. Uh, I mean, the, the 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 game yesterday, I didn't think we had many chances. That hasn't been the case in all the games. We should have scored more than just a penalty at Old Trafford. And we definitely should have scored in that first half at home to Leicester when, when Lacazette was managing to miss from inside the six-yard box on consecutive occasions. Um, but I, I, I have said previously, I am a little bit worried that we're not playing with a great deal of flair or creativity. Um, there's clearly a bit of a, a kind of the next stage of the development is proving tricky for, for Arteta. He obviously has made them more organised and more stable and more structured, and that was something that was badly needed. But but that's kind of, to an extent, that should be the easy bit for a good coach. And, and the, the harder bit is how do you retain that structure and stability while also allowing the team to go and be creative and, and attack and, and create chances in the final third. Um, and we're struggling with that a little bit at the moment. Not helped, obviously, yesterday by the sending off of the £72 million flop. Um, I'm completely done with Pepe. I think we've paid £72 million for him. He's been at the club nearly 18 months. I can't remember a single good game. He's had good moments. He's scored a few great goals. But I, I can't think of a game he's played for us where you come off the pitch and you go, wow, he was brilliant today. Um, and for £72 million, 18 months in, you need to see that. Not, not you know, if if he, if it was still, he was doing it, but not consistently enough, you, you'd maybe have more sympathy. Got no sympathy for his sending off yesterday. Um, I know he didn't exactly make a lot of contact with the Leeds boy and he threw himself down like he'd been shot, but you can't. Like- 
Yeah, you can't go and stick your forehead into someone's <laughs> face, though. I mean, that's an automatic red card, and especially these days with VAR, you're never going to get away with that. Complete prat. Um, but for £72 million, pound, I'd expect someone who could at least take a corner. Uh, and that's proving a bit of a challenge for him. Now, I'm, I think that that's one where we might just have to wipe our face in the summer. I don't expect him to be at Arsenal next season. Um, and I think we'll take a significant loss on him. I was going to say, have you, have you found the person with the spreadsheet to, to convince the Arsenal board that he was good? <laughs> yeah, Dan, if you can convince me that Pepe was signed on stats, then I'll, I'll move into your <laughs> thinking they're absolute garbage. Um, actually, some, some stats that um, Stu mentioned just in passing a, a few months ago um, was that um, one M. Ozil might actually make Arsenal be a bit more creative. Yeah, the the problem with Ozil, I think, was well, there, there are a number run. of problems there, and, and and yeah, there's there's certainly a personality problem. He was in the team before the lockdown. Don't forget the last game before the lockdown, we beat West Ham at home. He was in the team that day. So um, things that happened that were not on the football pitch over the lockdown period have definitely played a part in in what's happened to him. Um, but also, I think uh, as Arsenal sort of moved into that three four three system. Uh, pretty much right after the lockdown. I think it was the third game of the lockdown when they, they moved to three at the back. They didn't quite play that way yesterday, but in that 3-4-3, it was hard to see where Ozil fitted into that system. Um, if they're going to go back to play more of a 4-2-3-1, there's a role there that Meza Ozil have fit in perfectly. Unfortunately, he's not part of the Premier League squad at the moment, so that's not even an option. I don't expect Ozil to play for Arsenal again either. That's another player who will take a massive loss on when he leaves for nothing in uh, in May. It was a panic, panic getting to sign that new contract, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a panic because they got themselves into a bit of a messy situation with Sanchez and with Arsene Wenger, actually, because Wenger won that for the second time in, what was it, a four-year period or three-year period. Wenger won a cup final as his contract expired, which was the, the cup final against Chelsea. Um, and they signed him to a new two-year contract with a year left for Ozil and Sanchez, who made it clear they, they were dubious about signing new deals and then told Wenger the expectation was to win the league. Well, I don't think you can sign your manager to a new contract, tell him his expectation is to win the league and then sell two of his best players. So they got themselves into just a real strange position where the squad was actually at the point where it needed a bit of an overhaul, a bit of a kind of fresh start. And yet they were telling the manager he wasn't in rebuild mode, he was in win-now mode. And the two things never meshed together. That I, I mean, I, I was never a big Wenger outer, but I think that last contract they signed him to was a mistake. And uh, he should have gone after the Chelsea Cup final win. Um, and, the, and the Ozil contract is the kind of last legacy of that pretty shambolic decision, frankly. Not just the decision itself, but how it was reached, which was basically that Stan Kroenke made it despite not having been to a game all season. So I know you was a, a big, big fan of Arsene Wenger as well, Paul. Really, the any other business apart from firing David Coote into the sun, um, <laughs> I, I don't really have have anything. Have you, you three, got anything for me? No, I, I, I've not really done. I, I mean, you know, the uh, the least surprising news of the week, which I, I think I messaged you the other day, was that Wayne Rooney's interested in the Derby job. I think I predicted that after about three games of the season, um, Philip Cocker would get sacked and Wayne Rooney would throw his hat in the ring for the Derby job. Um, 
I'm, I'm no sort of strong view on how good a manager or otherwise Wayne Rooney would be. Uh, if he can take that Derby job and turn him into a half-decent side, then that'll be a decent start to his managerial career because they're a bit of a mess at the moment. Um, so that was that was kind of uh, one reflection. Also, if we're staying with managers near the bottom of the championship, um, our old, old mate Tony Pulis is back in work. TP. Uh, Sheffield Wednesday have decided that the situation is desperate enough to call for desperate measures. <laughs> so TP is off the soccer Saturday sofa, as it were, um, and right into a relegation battle, which he will absolutely love. And there's no risk at all of Sheffield Wednesday getting relegated. <laughs> Six foot eight fullbacks all around the league according to their age. <laughs> I'm telling you, that Sky Sports panel, it's the, it's the bench. We need to call it the bench. That's where managers go. They stick a headset on for three months and you get a job at the end of it. Well, some, um, someone said, I, I haven't watched this evening, but someone said Eddie Howe was on the tally tonight. On he, is, he is. Yes, he is. He is. Yeah, so um, there you go. Yeah, anyway. Eddie's at that point of the season where he's rested up and he's recuperated and he's had his break and he's fresh. Uh, and he's waiting for someone to get the sack. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there does seem to be the because uh, it was it was Pochettino a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it, was. it was on. So yeah, it does seem to be the uh, I'm a manager. Get me out of here. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be quite but, uh, quite because I mean I've not seen him on for a while, but it must be quite concerning if uh, soccer sat there's the managerial bench and Glenn Johnson's been around. You don't want to you don't want him going anywhere near your club, especially if you. Glenn was Glenn was on the weekend. He was he was doing the Villa game, describing in three different ways in in a sort of twenty second uh, segment whether it should or shouldn't have been a penalty at oh, the yes, end for Villa against was, Brighton. Yeah, he. Was. he uh, he said it definitely wasn't. Then it definitely was. Then he didn't know. <laughs> All well, bases covered. One thing <laughs> top I, top tree. One thing I know that Glenn Johnson definitely doesn't know is how to close a cross down. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. oh, years, years of him not closing down wingers. Years of it. Yeah, it's just crazy. Oh, I mean, he was good going forward. It, it, and he's, he, he comes across as a, a decent bloke, but yeah... Um, I was a bit mystified about that penalty as well. It was like, well, hang on a second, what's all this about? It was, it was drama. I've got, and it seems to be Michael Oliver every week as well who's involved in this, this drama. Tying it up with the uh, with the data earlier on, it's just a shame Sheffield Wednesday haven't got any data on anything outside of the six managers you're allowed to employ. You know, if, if they could look around the world and maybe see if there was another manager somewhere that was winning some football matches, you know, <laughs> maybe that's useful to them instead of just you know looking through the same list of eight managers you're allowed to sign. Well, Mark, well, absolutely, yeah, the. I was going to say Mark Hughes hasn't had Sheffield Wednesday yet, but Steve Bruce, Gary Monk, and Tony Pulis have. So um, <laughs> they are they are getting to the point. I mean, Chelsea got there, didn't they, for a while in the sort of late noughties, early early bit of the last decade, where they they ticked off every one of the sort of big name managers in Europe, and that's how they ended up appointing Andre Villas Boas because they were like, eh, I don't think there's anyone left on the list. <laughs> Diet Mourinho. He's now doing he's a, a job at Marseille. Yeah, I was going to say he's doing all right at Marseille. Having taken a year out to do the, was it the Dakar rally? He did he definitely did some strange rallying things? Yeah, we're way off topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it was it, again. He just went to Chelsea too early. He should have stayed where he was at Porto. I think the only thing I mean, we sort of touched on it at the start in relation to. To sort of stew in the grassroots game, but obviously there's these sort of announcements 
uh, around, you know, obviously might see some fans back in back in football stadiums uh, in the not too distant future, depending on what tiers people are put in and so on. So that, you know, just something to <laughs> a ray of ray of light. I'm not sure if it's the right decision necessarily in, in many for many reasons, but equally, I don't think we any of us would mind actually hearing and seeing some real fans instead of the. Uh, the artificial cheering that we're, that we're getting at the moment. It'd be really odd, though. It'd be really odd to sort of see 4,000 people in Old Trafford. You yeah, that would be, be, really... be a bit It will be a bit weird, yeah. <laughs> and an 80,000, you know, okay, yeah. it, it might look all right in some of the smaller grounds, but in an eight, I mean, how far away from these people are they going to be? More than social distancing if you're only going to have 4,000 in Old Trafford. Yeah, I, I assume they'll be able to put them. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure how they'll how they'll work it, whether they'll, you know, maybe put them sort of All in, in the, one stand. Yeah, yeah. the middle, middle bit or maybe, you know, behind a goal or whatever. I've no idea. We'll wait and see. But, uh, but you're, another... you're right, Khan. It's, it's, it's good news if we can get fans back into stadia sooner rather than later. It's, it, it yeah. It would be, would be great news. Although if the government is saying one thing, it'll be different next week. Mm. I imagine there should be toilets and uh, facilities and stuff like that, isn't it? Because they're all, even though they've got 4,000 people, they're all still using the same toilets, they're all still using the same doors and turnstiles and stuff, aren't they? You might have to book a toilet appointment. (laughs) (laughs) There'll be an app. There'll be an app for that. Stu, um, anything you want to plug or plug again? No, nothing in particular. Uh, Just pleased to be on again, guys, and uh, interesting chat. Cheers. Yeah, um, very, very interesting um, very stats heavy podcast um, so yeah thanks for your time Stu, Paul, Cam thank you for joining us again we'll be back next week uh, we may or may not have a guest I'll have to decide um, when we're going to be having our next guest on so thank you very much this is the Big Football Podcast um, if you could please like, share and subscribe um, it would be very beneficial. And if you want to, to let me know what you think of the podcast, is any improvements, like Stop Talking Dan, uh, you can hit me up on Twitter. Um, we're going to be getting our own podcast Twitter account soon. But for now, um, just if you can just let me know, that's uh, at TLW1Dan. Um, and if you've got any feedback and I like it, then I'll do something about it. And if I don't, well, hey, uh, that's life. Um, So thank you very much, everybody, and we'll catch you again after a while.